I see by the New York Times and several other newspapers that New Jersey is now instituting a history mobile, complete with 15 beautifully done drum majorettes, all dressed in Western costumes of an earlier time. A history mobile will travel around the state and produce history to any one of the many. Will produce history in the minds of those who want. Yeah, by the way, that makes a wonderful idea. Can't you imagine a a destiny-orama? I kind of like the destiny-orama. Just bring it in there. Come on, one, two, three. Come on. Have you ever had the feeling that New Jersey is a figment of the showbiz mind entirely? A land, a beautiful land of drive-in theaters, of pizza joints, of instant seat covers. Yes, a land out there beyond the river. Just waiting for showbiz. Come on, bring it up. All together. Let's all sing it out. studio here. They, you know, they have little things. They fool around with the paper clips and stuff. So I know how to work this machine here. Uh, you know, I'll tell you. If uh, sometimes I wonder how it's how it's going. I, uh, the, the idea of a history mobile traveling over the state of New Jersey <laughs> somehow makes it. It's a little bit of history. Uh, makes a one day stand. Now, now tonight's program uh, for those of you who uh, might be a bit squeamish is about how showbiz is taking over the world that we live in. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's taking over the world at all. I think at, finally, at long last, we are admitting that life itself is showbiz. Uh, it's not the same thing that Shakespeare said, that all the worlds are, what is it? All the worlds a TV screen and all of us are but after members. Uh, I, I don't... <laughs> that would be kind of a paraphrasing, but I, that isn't exactly what I mean. I, I suspect today that even the most serious of things are, are produced. It must have been pretty sloppy, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, without a good director on hand. I don't know. They must have been awfully dull. And I'm sure that if, if there had been a good director around, he would not have allowed Lincoln to show up in those unpressed pants. Have you ever seen pictures of Lincoln on the stand? Although, on the other hand, a really sharp director would have had him wear even less pressed pants, you know, a little, because, you know, a little dust there, a little mud of Illinois on. It's all part of the thing. I, I, uh, so tonight's program is about that aspect of existence. Now, many of us are working in offices where they have not yet realized that programming of the existence, the life in that office, can make that office an entirely different concept, can make everything change and move. You know that, that today it's possible for, for an organization, Ed, to have proper music piped in on all floors and in the elevators that set the mood and the tempo of each hour in that office. For example, you can have quiet, solemn, almost reverential music piped in to the promotion department. Now, a promotion department's got to believe, right? It's got to have faith. Faith! You hear that, man? Faith! And so, as they work at their copy, as they work at their production of the promotional schemes, out of the little loudspeakers concealed beyond the edge of the fluorescent light, comes quiet dee-dum-pum-pum-pum-pum-pum reverential music. 
Now, on the other hand, what is it that the sales department's got to have? Drive hard, hitting drive. Susa marches are booming out. All this is very... Now, what about the slaves in the mail room? Well, you pipe... You pipe soporific music in the, to the slaves in the mail room because you never know when there's liable to be an uprising there. After all, you know, when a man's in the mail, he knows he's in the mail room. So you bring him hour after hour of the castoria of music. Uh, that, 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 quiet, uh, that quiet, calming sound of endless strings about to play a melody but never quite achieving it. One arpeggio after the other, WPATsville. And on and on. And so as a guy is sorting his mail, he's quietly lulled into a sense of security, which, of course, is entirely false. Entirely false. <laughs> well, then, then, then on the other hand, how do you think, how do you think uh, they should act or, or they should be programmed in, let's say, the, uh, the manufacturing end? Well, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Think about it for a minute. How would you program? How would you program the manufacturing end? I think. Got a nail. Get a little drunk and get playing. Wouldn't it be great to play one of these behind Mike Quill someday? <laughs> All right, hold it there. <laughs> Short and big God. Uh, well, uh, our. While we're on the subject, you know, of, of showbiz becoming part of everything, I have here, I have here a special bulletin from Press Washington Bureau. President Kennedy has many friends among the Hollywood contingent, and that may explain the liberal use of movie land expressions by the new frontiersmen. For instance, before JFK went to Europe, administration planners drew up not an itinerary, but a scenario. Thus, there was the, quote, German scenario, the Dublin scenario, and so forth. Such showbiz terminology is not just an example of momentary lightheartedness. It is the standard argo around the White House. At the height of the rail crisis the other day, as aides were readying the fish room for an important statement by the president, one could hear such cries as, Clear the set! Clear the set! Clear the set! Clear the set! Very good. That's just right. Very good. Long pregnant pause. All right, clear the set. Clear the set. All right, now. Just 30 seconds. We're going on the air, all you fellas. Now, remember what we're here for. Now, remember what the scene is. Now, listen to me. I'm directing the scene here now. All right, now. You're all ready? You all have your lines memorized? Now, remember what we're here for. The scene is this. We are deciding the fate of mankind in this scene. Now, that is the spine of the scene. You understand that now? All right, now. I'm going to give each one of you a problem that I want you to work on as we run through this scene. The first take will be, of course, just a rehearsal take. The second take, we might can it. All right, now, Mr. Nehru. Remember, you are playing a contemplative, solemn Easterner, a man of great wisdom and forbearance, and yet a man who is tempered with philosophy. Now, as the camera opens, I want you to put your hand on your forehead, look down at the desk, and then quietly, with an enigmatic smile, 
look up very slowly. Do you have that pendant? Very good, very good. Well, let me run run through that there for a minute. Just I want to see you do it there. All right, go, go, Nero, go. Easy now, easy. Bring that hand up your forehead a little slower there. Easy now, easy, easy. Very good, very good. Now look up. Now turn slowly towards JFK. He's the one on your left there. Turn slowly towards JFK. Now just bring a little sadness into the eye. Very good, very good, very good. Now, now, Nick, Khrushchev. Hey, Khrushchev, listen to me now. Now, hold on. Quit scratching. Look, look, now look. I don't have any time to fool around. It's costing us 300 bucks an hour. Now sit up. All right, now, Khrushchev, you're playing a simple peasant ruler of a great nation. A man of quick temper, but yet simple barbaric humor. Now, when the scene opens, I want you to... Give us the impression that you have just finished a hearty laugh and are now ready to become very serious about the world's conditions. Now, and oh, by the way, we want also playing underneath your role. I want you to be playing always that at any moment you are liable to laugh again and also that you are a man of great power, that you could crush all of these men at the table if you wanted to do it. And there is just a little touch of sardonic amusement in you. All right, are you ready to do that? Now, let's take it down there at that second line there, will you? Nick, you see down the second line there in your script? Look down, the second, right down there past number A. You you got it there? All right, now, when the camera comes up, I want you to be saying to yourself, not out loud, of course, because the sound will be rolling. <laughs> All right, now, let's hear what you've got to say. You. All right, you got that now? Now, you just run it over there. Just run it over there now. All right, ready? Go, Nick, now. No, 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 no. I don't want an outright laugh. I want a, a suggestion of a laugh. Very good. Now, try it again. Very good. My God, that's right. Very good, Nick. Good. Uh, you're a fast learner. All right, now. Kennedy. John, will you listen? All right, now, pay attention. Now, uh, we can only go... Through the, we're running short on time. We've got a lot of scenes to shoot. All right, John. What I want you to do in this scene, I want you to play a man of great forbearance. But yet, at the same time, a man who could be, on the other hand, triggered into a... A very, very definite aggressive act. You, you understand what you're playing now? You are a man who could be called a prime salesman, a good one, a good man, but who believes in what he's doing, and furthermore, a man who has a kind of young, a Pepsi-Cola look. You know what I mean by Pepsi-Cola look? You know, uh, for those who think young, just think about that for a minute. You, you know the girls think for a Pepsi-Cola for those who think young. You try that. As, as the scene opens, I want you to look as though you have just left a wonderful party at the fraternity house, and now you're going to have a good, serious bull session. And you're going to all pull down your hair and level. That's, that's what I want out of you. Now try it, John. All right, try it now. I just start there. I want you to. I want us to. Uh, uh, that's the adjustment. Now remember, those who think young. Now take it. Let's go. You're a little serious now. No, 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 no. Oh, you're just a little bit serious because you see the problem. You, you don't want to drag the audience down. You want them to feel the tension that is within the youth. Now get it. And now let's try it again. Now. Think young. Think young. Think young. Now think serious. I just want to watch you think serious now. Now you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about Sartre. No, 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 think about that. Existentialism. No, no, no. Now you're going to talk about destiny. And now, once again, I want... 
Very good, very good. Now, John, now I want you to bring in your expression. Now, now try to think for one minute of moving forward. Moving forward. Come on. Progress, progress, progress. Very good, very good. All right, now, all of you ready now? Remember Pandit. Remember now, contemplative. You're a very, very serious man, but you're a man of forbearance, right? Nick, all right, remember the laugh now. All set now? Any questions? Good. All right, boys, you ready to roll? Now, remember, we're deciding the fate of mankind. This is scene seven on page four. This will be track nine. All ready? Roll sound. Sound is rolling. Roll cameras. Cameras rolling. All ready, now, watch me, man. Watch, watch. Action. Very good, very good, very good, very good. Cut, cut. We're going to can that one. We're going to can that one. We're going to can it. Very good. Can it, can it. Very good. Speaking of rotten show biz, this is WORM and FM New York. <laughs> oh, boy. Boy, you know, hold that, hold that there in abeyance, will you, Eddie? Uh, oh, yes, it's creeping in everywhere. Wish I had uh, some uh, solemnness here uh, tonight. Some really, really ripe stuff here. Um, Speaking of uh, of ripe stuff, did you read the uh, and again with the showbiz world? Did you read the piece in the advertising section of the Times recently by Peter Bart? Well, I will read it to you if you never get back that far in the Times. Uh, signs of the Times. This is being put into my my very special. I have a special high priority trivia file, which is a high priority trivia which which I think a thousand years from now, Ed, will be prime material for the anthropologists and the archaeologists of that time to know why the devil had happened, you know, uh, what really went on at this time. Well, you'll never get it out of, the, out of the editorial copy. Listen to this one. Several radio stations in the Middle West will soon start running a radio jingle with some beautiful and unexpected lyrics. Quote, doesn't it get a little lonely sometimes out on that limb without him? Why try and go it alone? The blessings you lose may be your own. Yes, go to the church of your choice this Sunday. All right, hold it there. Only in America where they dream of the idea of a singing commercial for church. Well, uh, the blessings you lose may be your own. Uh, I, I'm reading, no, all I'm doing is quoting the Times, and this isn't me. The jingles will be broadcast as paid commercials on behalf of the United Presbyterian Church of the United States. They were created by Stan Freeberg, the Californian, who also created the very effective ads for Chungking Chinese Foods, Katadina Tomato Paste, and other fine, fast-moving products. Mr. Freeberg says there's no reason why I can't move Christianity just like I move Chinese foods. Get it off the shelves. All fresh goods, fresh frozen. 
Presbyterian Church officials say the Freebird Midwestern radio ads are part of a test campaign aimed at determining whether advertising jingles can interest more people in salvation. Oh, I can think of some great, I can think of one fantastic lyrics for that. Would you like to burn in hell? Would you like to fly? Then why not fly church next Sunday? Have you ever asked yourself why, why are you afraid to fry, fry in hell, in hell, in hell? Try the United Presbyterian there. Oh, you can do some great ones there. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. He goes on to say here, if the jingles prove successful, they may be used nationwide. Uh, the, the venture in the advertising is another reflection of the growing interest shown by large numbers of religious dominations, denominations in mass advertising. Such disparate groups as the Jehovah Witnesses, the Swedenborg Society, and the Episcopal Church have recently experimented with modest advertising campaigns. Move it on them shelves, let's go! If they can move those Chevys, oh, we're not going to have any trouble with the United Baptists. The right Reverend William R. Moody, Bishop of the Lexington, Kentucky Episcopal Diocese, has started an advertising campaign on behalf of his church using large outdoor signs along the highway. Bishop Moody, who's become a firm proponent of the power of advertising, has warned his fellow churchmen that Christian cannot go into the churches and shut the door and stay there. Get out and sell! Gee, if we can only get Ethel Merriman to belt out a few quick courses. Onward, Christian soldiers and marching on. You know that jazzy chorus they always have behind them? Yeah, easy there, Ed. You know that jazzy chorus they always have, you know, behind them? Have you ever noticed they have real snotty choruses singing uh, in all musicals? You know the kind of choruses that all sound like they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. Onward, Christian soldiers. Oh, boy. It worries me. Now, somebody's going to call up and say, I'm anti-Christian or anti-religion. Wow. <laughs> Gee, well, let's see. Uh, you want to hear some more about this? Uh, oh, boy. But this is... Uh, I, I kind of like this. Listen, the, the, the Presbyterians tested an, an extensive newspaper advertising campaign in 1950. At the time, the church said it intended to become the first major Protestant denomination to buy nationwide newspaper display advertising to appeal for new members. The campaign concentrated on personal problems, carrying such headlines as, Religion saved me from cracking up, and alcohol had him down. Why don't you drop in next Sunday and find out... After several weeks, however, the campaign was suspended because officials of the church believed that they were not attracting enough unchurched people. Uh, the Presbyterians hope to have better luck with their new jingles. Mr. Freeberg has done some lively spoofs for commercial clients. He's intensely serious about the Presbyterian jingles. He's the son of a retired minister, and he believes they will bring more people into the church. <laughs> well, good luck, Stan. A very, very interesting problem. But, uh, you know, I, I remember, as long as we're bringing up that problem of, uh, of uh, showbiz uh, creeping into the world, uh, 
and and uh, kind of taking over. I, I remember one of the uh, one of the first examples I ever saw of that kind of thing uh, was, uh, you know, I kind of like the idea of a destiny orama, uh, which will be the next step after the history mobile, which is made. Do you remember? Do you remember the thing? Uh, <laughs> the thing that traveled across the country here a few years ago. How many of you remember that thing? Speaking of uh, showbiz. Uh, becoming so much part of our world that it's 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 indistinguishable from the world itself. Do you remember the Freedom Train that went across the country, and it uh, it was it was so peculiar. I went down there. It, it came into the town where I was working at the time. In fact, I was going to school. It was it was in Cincinnati, and this this uh, train came down there, and it was. It was very. I had this funny feeling that it was that that the whole history of of the United States, and in fact the whole history of what you could call Western democracy, was being packaged. It was like a gigantic uh, show. It's like Freedom Land. Have you ever been to these places where they say, "And in just a few moments, the Chicago Fire." Yes, you can say, and in, in 15 minutes, you can line up and get in line for your tickets for the Battle of Gettysburg. Well, uh, I wonder whether or not, 50 years from now, there will be the like thing, uh, the same thing. Of course, there will be a thing called Freedom Land, or there will be th something called uh, America Land, or Democracyville, something like this, a great big show. And they'll have things like, all right, all right, in just 20 minutes, stand by for the wonderfully exciting replica of the integration riots in Birmingham. Stand by for the integration riots in Birmingham. And in just 15 more minutes, you can see... Oh, yeah. History and, and life is one big showsville, believe me. Uh... You wonder how many people are serious about it, and, and you wonder if anybody ever really is, even the people that are being carried around. You know, you see, because I've known so many, uh, so many uh, demonstrators of one kind or another, and, and uh, <laughs> I've, often, I've often wondered really what, what most of them are after, particularly tall, thin girls with, with horn-rimmed glasses. I've, I've known, <laughs> or short, dark girl with long, with long hair. You know that kind of little angry type. Uh, this is, this is uh, all part of the showbiz world of our time. But uh, this, this, uh, this thing is a is a far more insidious and creeping thing than most people probably even want to admit. Uh, I, I wonder just how much of us spend, how much of our days, just what percentage of our days is spent in hoking it up, literally hoking it up. By hoking it up, I mean pretending you're interested in the new campaign. You know what I mean by that? Now, see, engineers wouldn't understand because they're just operating the dials. They don't know about that. But, but if you go into the sales departments in almost any organization, I wonder how much time is spent pretending like you really care, you know? Hoking it up, going to lunches and pretending like you really are interested in what this lout has to say. This clown that makes the galvanized garbage can lids, you know, and he wants to put them over big this year with the new plastic handles. And he's telling you about his trip to Pittsburgh. And you're sitting there nodding, you know, and your eyes are... Uh, how much of that is showbiz? I'm curious. How many times do you find yourself playing Jack Lemmon? literally being affected by Jack Lemmon, you know, playing the scene the way Gregory Peck would play it.
thinking for just a brief fleeting moment, how would Montgomery Cliff react under a situation like this? <laughs> now, you know, uh, I, 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 uh, I just wonder, when you talk about showbiz, it's more than production, it's also attitude. Uh, have you ever watched in a musical, have you ever watched uh, the, the big stars, almost invariably a large woman, uh, this, this a large angry lady of almost indeterminate sex, but you just know she's large and loud and she can really belt. You know, you can hear her all the way over in Staten Island when she's, when she's singing pianissimo. And the band is going, and she turns and faces the balcony up there, and she sings, I love you, I love you, more and more every day. And you see this guy that she's supposed to be in love with is sort of fading into the scenery. And, and, and she's belting it way, Helen gone out somewhere past Passaic. I love you, I love you. Well, now, the question I, 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 I bring up here, <laughs> the question I bring up here, if you're sitting back, say, 34 rows back there someplace, or maybe you're sitting up the balcony, do you believe that she does love him? Or is singing about love much more important than love itself? That's a good question, you know. Stop and think about it for a minute. Is, is, it, is, 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 is production now taking over where, where uh, anything else before? In short, the passion that a writer can have about a subject, is the passion really about that subject? Is this woman really singing about love? Is she really showing or displaying love? Right, it's a good, uh, very difficult question to answer. Uh, oh yeah, it's a very, very difficult problem here. So, so uh, many a man has found out in politics, for example, that he's dead if he doesn't have the proper expression on his face when he says he's concerned about the existence of mankind and one thing and another. It's an old axiom that if a presidential candidate makes him laugh, forget it, he's dead. If anybody laughs at you, you're, you're dead. In fact, it's, it, it, this is one of the reasons, you know, why over the years, people who really had something to say about life found that they could say it better by making people laugh as they said it, because people let them get away with it then. Voltaire made people laugh, even in his time. Uh, and that's how he got away, really, was saying what he did say. If he had said it with deadly seriousness, they would have made him into Cole's Law. Jonathan Swift made people laugh in, laugh in his time. Uh, there, there are several other people of that kind, particularly Swift, who made people laugh. But all the while, he was saying what he had to say with almost fanatical, uh, <laughs> uh, dead seriousness. He wasn't fooling around. But he learned that if you made people laugh, they wouldn't know you were serious, so you could say it. Now, conversely, you can say the worst pap, and if you look serious about it, people will say you're a serious man. Really a serious man. Uh, if, if, you, if you say the most ridiculous, trivial uh, political commentary and you, you say it seriously and you look really seriously into the... Fa if you say such a piece of tripe as, I believe that the eternal goodness of man and the deep core of love that all of us have within us will carry us through. Everyone will nod and say, yeah. Pure pap. Pure, utter chicken chow mein, pap. 
and yet, yet you see, it was the it was the passion with which it was said that made people nod and say, "Gee, you know that that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense." <laughs> and so, if you're if you're going to sing about love, don't ever sing it to the guy on the stage. Sing it to the audience, and and belt it out with as much. That's why the word sincerity is a big word in our time. Much more important than the word honesty. Because the word sincerity uh, refers to technique. The word honesty refers to something that goes beyond technique. It's a, it's a very different word. And yet they're often used interchangeably. And so you will hear a kid uh, talking about a rock and roll singer. And uh, they'll say, well, the reason I, I dig this guy is he's, boy, there's no, there's no guy that's more sincere than he is. He's a very sincere guy. Paul Anka is very sincere. I think he's very sincere. Well, now, they, uh, they're they referring to something that has very little to do with honesty or reality or anything else. Sincerity has become a commodity, and that's all part of show business. Anybody who, who has acted, of course, who knows, who, knows, uh, who has worked on the, on the stage or has performed in front of, of things of this nature, knows that, that, that the sincerity, the sincerity is far more important than having anything to say. Oh, speaking of that, I remember... As a kid, one one of the things that really, uh, and this of course goes along with the church jingles, it goes along with uh, with uh, the whole business. I remember this minister, and uh, there were a group of us kids who were who were playing on a uh, a church basketball team. Now, uh, funny thing about that, they had gone out and they had recruited a bunch of kids who were involved in athletics of one kind or another and had played basketball in high school or certain places. And, and all the various churches around in this large city had their own basketball team. Now, very few of the guys who went, uh, who played basketball on these teams were really involved in the churches themselves. And so one day, I remember uh, we, we had we had had a, a pretty a pretty tough uh, series of losses. We had lost to the Baptist. I think we'd also lost to uh, to a couple of the Catholic teams. We we took a trouncing from uh, from the Benet Brith. Our team was it was really and and so we were having trouble. See, I I was on a Presbyterian team at the time. Well, uh, the 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 minister. Who, uh, who had a coach who was also one of the elders of the church, but on, on the side, he coached a high school basketball team. Before one of the games in the dressing room, the minister stood up and he, 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 uh, he said a few religious words, and then he says, now look, fellas. Now, I, I didn't want to come out right and say this right out in the open, but uh, uh, with, the, with the way the record is going lately, do you, have you looked at the record? He says, have you looked at the standings in the league? In the religious league, the church league, if you looked at the standings, there are eight teams in this league. Guess where the United Brethren are? Well, there I was sitting with a great big UB United Brethren, say a couple of things, you know. And well, uh, there wasn't a, there wasn't a man jack of us who didn't know that we were just barely hanging on to seventh place. We were hanging on to seventh place by about two percentage points. After that night, I might point out, <laughs> it was not a question of seventh place; it was a question of trying to get back into eighth. But nevertheless, we sat there, and he says, now look. He says, now you know where you are, don't you, in the standings. I want all of you to realize that you are more than basketball players. You are selling a way of life. You are selling a philosophy. You are selling a viewpoint. 
You are so like... Well, you, uh, the, the, the light of fervor began to come into his eyes, and all of us are sitting there, a couple of guards and two big, you know, <laughs> great big gangling centers are sitting there with their mouths hanging open, and, 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 and a couple of us forwards are sitting there kind of looking funny. And I had, I had one of these big masks on, you know. I had a big mask on the front because I'd had a bashed-in nose uh, two weeks before playing, by the way, the Baptists. In a little scrimmage that occurred, I'll never forget that thing. But they're, yeah, oh yeah, they're a tough crew. Oh, they're very fanatical. So I, I'm sitting there, and I got this mask and I got tape over my nose, you know, and I got the thing. And I'm sitting there, and we're all ready to go. And he says, "You're selling away life. Now I want you to get out there, and I want you to hit him, and I want you to hit him for John Knox. I want you to hit him for well." By George, you know, you should have seen our ball team. We went out on that. We went out on that floor. You could have heard onward Christian soldiers marching. Well, within five minutes, three of us had fouled out. Well, <laughs> it was a disaster that night. But, but that that uh, that that was that was one of the of the more. Uh, I, I guess that was an early attempt to sell the, this this thing by that technique because I happen to live in a society that was very athletic oriented. As a matter of fact, you could you could measure how well our team was doing by the attendance, and and also you could measure how well our team was doing by the collection on Sundays. And so, oh yes, they they would they would. Uh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget one time there was a brief prayer and it was offered up on the behalf of the, the fact that one of our centers had scored 28 points and had scored 16 free shots. And, and yes, they were foul shots. And, and the minister drew the conclusion that crime does not pay. And last week, the Baptists found it out. They lost on foul shots. <laughs> and he looked up, you know, and you could see the light coming through the windows and everything. And somehow you had the feeling that, by George, that, that, uh, that, that goodness does pay off in the end. And, and our big fat center sat there with a big grin. Well, then, then one week, one week they asked all of us, all the basketball players, to, that we had to make an appearance. So, so one week they, they asked us to all come in and, and be ushers. And it was funny to see all these guys with crew haircuts, with, with, uh, with tape on their knees. You know, we'd had a big game the night before. It was a big Saturday night game. And we were all, we all arrived there. You could smell, you could smell, uh, stuff like Sloan's liniment. You could smell, you know, the odor of the gym came around, and all of us were standing back in what was the little thing that they have at the at the beginning of the church, the little like the little lobby there, and and they were briefing us on on how you make the collection. We were going to be guest ushers, and so on that on that Sunday, all of us sort of moved on down the aisle. It was very funny because because uh, you know the big crew haircut guys, they're all moving. Hey, give me give the money there, and they're passing the thing. Hey, give me give me the dough. And, and, and <laughs> the spirit of competition always played there. And so when you saw one guy's basket was getting more dough than yours, you kind of, come on, come on, here, hey, Charlie, give me the dough there. We're moving up and down the aisle. It was the biggest collection we ever had. The basketball team came through again. Well, <laughs> then, 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 of course, one of the funniest things happened was, was one of the most interesting kinds of, uh, well, I suppose you might call it uh, salvation work, was that many of us began to get uh, offers from various other teams. Uh, it was a terrible thing to see one guy, I mean, one, one week he's playing, playing a hard-driving forward for the Methodists, and the next week he's out there belting them around for the Christian scientists. 
and and you know, you know and, and and oh yes, this is the way it was, you know. And and uh, this is not not being anything against religion. It was just it was just the way the kids were. Then then it was announced, of course, that that this summer they were going to have a baseball league. And now this is where the guys really began to shine. I'll never forget one day being dusted off. By 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 this by this clean limb Methodist. This guy had rimless glasses, you know. But let me tell you, he threw a spitball. He threw a spitball that that that, that didn't drip. It squirted all the way down. And I'll tell you, <laughs> and it was an awful thing, you know. You're down there, and 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 I never heard more religious statements made by people than than that afternoon when that guy was throwing that spitball and guys kept diving into the dirt. You dive into the dirt down there, and you know it was funny. You step into the batter's box, and there'd be teeth all over there in the batter's box, and and uh, so it, oh yes, huh? What? Can't hear you. <laughs> well, well, uh, one more one more thing though that I, I remember along that line of, of showbiz beginning to be part of our world was the time that that I'm about. Uh, I must have been about oh my. Two, maybe oh, a little older than that. I was, I was just, I was in what they call what is this pre-kindergarten type thing? They had, a, they had a, a kindergarten prep in our school. Where you, you'd prepare for the block work. Uh, it was pre-sandbox stuff, you know. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, this, this was a very interesting time there. And they had a guy came around and he was doing juggling stuff. And he had a, he had a, he had a, a magician's cape on. And I was going through my mandrake phase. There was a Mandrake the Magician guy he used to work the comic strips. You remember him? What was the name of the guy that worked with him? Yes, a big tall guy, remember? I think he wore... He, no, he didn't have a turban. His hair, he was bald. Bald. He didn't have any... He was skinhead, strictly. You remember him? What was his name? No, no, no. Arthur, that was not his name. His name was not Arthur. No, no. He was a big guy. It was not the Asp. No, that was another group. They, they worked... That was the McCarthy crew. No, that was another group. Uh, what was his name? Anyway, uh, I was going through my Mandrake phase, and it was announced that, that the son of Mandrake was going to appear at the pre-kindergarten thing. Yes, he called himself the son of Mandrake. Well, he showed up there, and of course I was, my tongue was hanging out. I was already, you see, I was wanted, wanted to see the guy with the big bald head, and uh, they were going to do this stuff. Well, he had a high hat on, the, the way Mandrake wore a high hat. You know those those high hats? He had this a high silk hat on, and he showed up, and he had this long cape with a, with a red lining, and he started to do things like he was pulling rabbits out of the sandbox, you know, and he was pulling eggs out of out of uh, Miss Parks's ear and all that kind of stuff, and he's doing all this wonderful stuff, and of course I'm deeply involved, and and all the kids are, are gassed and yelling and hollering and cheering. It was a great thing, and then all of a sudden, he moves into his pitch. He reaches from behind what what you know the big toy uh, the have a big toy table there with all the things on. He reaches behind the thing and he takes out a gigantic plastic tooth, and he starts doing tricks with the plastic tooth, and the message began to seep through that what he was he was selling us brushing our teeth, that the whole idea was that you should brush your teeth, and he went on and on and on about all the while pulling rabbits out of hats and he had a big plastic thing there, and he gradually worked into a pitch for Pepsodent. It seems that he was sponsored by Pepsi, along with Amos and Andy. So he comes out and he's telling us about Pepsi. And, and I was not only going through a mandate phase, at that point I was going through a fantastic anti-toothbrushing phase. 
I refused to brush my teeth, and it was one of those terrible things because I didn't like the, the soapy taste and the bubbly stuff, and I hated the idea of brushing my teeth. And here was this guy up there, Mandrake, the son of Mandrake, was selling me not only toothbrushing but Pepsodent. And, well, it, 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 it has stuck with me. I have never since gotten over that. Every time I see a toothbrush, every time I see a tube of Pepsodent, I feel a kind of sick. Uh, what is the feeling? What is the, what is the word? Betrayed. Betrayed. That's it. Betrayed. Hi, right, George. Betrayed. I mean, it would be like, oh, boy. I'm telling you, it would be like suddenly finding out that, that oh, no, 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 you can't. Well, you know, showbiz is beginning to slowly creep in. And you wonder, in the end, where it will all stop, or if it ever will stop. And uh, I think, and I, 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 I feel, I feel that that uh, this this area of projection into the future. You know, this is one of the one of the areas that I think science fiction has never really touched too much. They always work with the machine, or they work with with thought control, and they work with. I wonder. I wonder how. How much of our life today, as opposed to, say, life, oh, who knows, a thousand years ago, is pure fantasy? Do you know that, that, that there was a period in, uh, in history, uh, a good thousand years ago, when almost the entire life of, of the daily life of people, just walking around the streets, people, was, in a sense, a kind of, well, a kind of, well, a kind of fantasy that doesn't exist today in many places of the world. When I say a kind of fantasy, I'm talking about the kind of fantasy that caused people to build gigantic cathedrals, to, to build enormous uh, monuments of one kind or another. Uh, this, this was a very interesting kind of fantasy, and, and many philosophers recognize it as such. They recognize it today as a, as a kind of fantasy world. Uh, the world of the Egyptian 4,000 years ago, of the daily Egyptian, or the daily life of the, of, the, of the Egyptian, was lived in a kind of fantasy that caused the creation of the pyramids, that caused the creation of the Sphinx, that caused the creation of the, of the, of the, 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 the tremendous things. Have you ever been in Egypt? You couldn't believe it. You just wonder what kind of a dream world these people must have lived in. They're all dead and gone, and these great monuments remain. Well, what kind of a dream world, a fantasy world, are we living in? What, what, what sort of attitude will they have a thousand years from now about the great enigmatical, inexplicable monuments we'll leave behind? Like countless rolls of TV film. Countless rolls of... Uh, James Arness opuses or opi, countless reels of uh, of Jimmy Stewart and Tab Hunter. Well, that is a fantasy world beyond all of them, Jack. It really is. Now, now in in the world of the opera, at least they have they have the honesty to admit it's fantasy. You know, there it is. It's just fantasy. And the thing that the people who are involved in that fantasy are involved in really is the fantasy of technique. They're fascinated by the technique of the fantasists, literally. They will compare one high note with another. Yeah, oh yeah, they don't care what the opera says. Who cares what Wagner's saying, you know? Who cares about this? They're, they're all hung on technique. And, and in the end, that is seeping through every phase of our life. We're more concerned with Brando's technique 
We're more concerned with Tennessee Williams' dramatic technique than with what he says. It's a gigantic technique, happy civilization, all the way out, up and down. Stay tuned now for the Long John Neville Show. This is WOR AM and FM, your RKO General Station in New York. It's 12 midnight. The story about Fulton Osler and his family, which is going to be titled, according to Will's first idea, the family story, I think is going to be very exciting. I read two chapters. Of course, there'll be some changes in those chapters, I know. Otherwise, they couldn't even hit the stands yet. In fact, I think we are the having first, a lawyer read. I think, I think the first four paragraphs in the book will be deleted. And the night we're going to do the show, if you send a self-addressed stamped envelope to me... I'll send you the four, <laughs> the four, the four, no, the four paragraphs, the, four the first four paragraphs, which are worth the price of the book alone. But it's going to be an extremely interesting book, and uh, in the the book, as we learn in the first chapter, there as as Will has, well, he sort of gives us a preview of what we're going to read about in the rest of the book. And uh, there's the story in there about his relationship with the late Bernard McFadden, 